Mindfulness practice is more than what we give it credit. There is a way to reconfigure the emotion centers of the brain through neuroplastics, through the act of mindfulness, right? And mindfulness, as we know, can be so vast these days, right? Resetters, Dr. Mindy here, and I am on a mission to teach you just how powerful your body was built to be. This podcast is about giving you the power back and helping you believe in yourself again. Let's jump in. On this episode of the Resetter Podcast, I bring you Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Now, let me give you a little bit of a background on Dr. Marielle. She is a therapist, and she is a PhD from Columbia University. She is a professor, an intergenerational trauma expert. And in this episode, you are going to hear us talk about the power of intergenerational traumas on our current present day health. This is a mind-blowing idea, and this is why I wanted to bring her to you all. One of the things that you're going to hear us discuss is how traumas, not only from earlier in our life, can really affect our physical and mental health now, but we really dove into this idea of how traumas that were happened in generations before us can actually affect our DNA. So if you are really looking to unwind traumas, you're looking for new tools for your mental health bag, this is a great episode because it's a discussion I've never had here on the Resetter podcast. It's also a discussion I feel like doesn't happen, it doesn't get discussed and highlighted enough, which is when we're dealing with our current day mental health our past traumas, our past family traumas, traumas from generations before us could all be playing out in this particular moment. And as mind-blowing as that can be, it really is something that I think a lot of you, after listening to this episode, will have some ahas, will have new tools on how you can take your mental health to a whole new level that serves you in such a joyful and fulfilling way. So Dr. Marielle and I geeked out on intergenerational traumas, and I really wanted to highlight and bring to the forefront of this conversation things you can do immediately. How Once we're aware of these traumas, how do we change this immediately? And that's what we talk about on this episode. Hey, Recenters, as we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, 
We answer your burning questions and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash reset academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled. And let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. I, again, just want to officially welcome you to the Resetter podcast. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Yeah. And this topic is so massively important. Um, I think for my audience, one of the things that I've seen happen is as we start to clean our body up and we make better choices, sometimes the emotional stuff and the old patterns and the things that have mentally held us back, like bubble to the surface and reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm so excited to have this discussion with you. And if you, what I want to do is start with this idea of breaking the cycle and the way you say it, I I have a feeling it's, there's multiple layers to this, but the way, what you call intergenerational traumas. So can you just start by enlightening us with what does it mean to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma? Ooh, such a good question to start with. Yeah, it's deep. Oh, I go deep here on the Resetter oh, yeah. podcast. I'm not into superficial conversations, so go for I it. That. I, likewise, <laughs> I'm loving it. Um, yeah, you know, breaking the cycle is um, as layered of a process as is intergenerational trauma. We're talking about trauma that has penetrated within us in layers. It's trauma that is uh, both biological and psychosocial. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's situated in our genes and it is situated in a lot of our social interactions throughout life, social meaning with other people or with systems. And so when we're talking about intergenerational trauma as operating within those layers, when we express that we are trying to be cycle breakers, we're doing so in layers as well. So the healing is done in layers. And that means that the healing has to be something that is reflected um, at the cellular level. It's something that's reflected in our social spaces, in our relationships. It's reflected systemically in the ways that we interact with systems and the privileges that we hold and the disprivileges that we hold. And so it becomes a multi-layered process. And so Um, It's important for us to attend to the different ways that we can actually embody healing when we're doing intergenerational work, because we can't leave one area of healing out of the agenda. We're just going to basically shift the pain in one direction. Mm, Yeah. How would you know? So, you know, of course, my science brain goes to things like there's an incredible study out years ago showing that 
even the grandchildren of survivors of Auschwitz have, they can see epigenetic changes that manifested in that lineage for anxiety because of, a, you know, a situation the grandparent had, you know, from a clinical level, that's the way my brain can understand it is like, well, if I have anxiety and maybe my grandparent had anxiety, maybe it's a genetic thing. Is, is that the way you look at it? Or is it more evasive than that is a little less, less obvious. No, actually, you're right on the money. You know, when we're talking about the cellular biology um, of intergenerational trauma, we're talking about the ways in which uh, there have been genetic imprints that have that have been within us, you know, like, um, and those genetic imprints are um, handed down to us by individuals in our lineage who have suffered a specific trauma, like the trauma of the Holocaust, like the traumas that are collective, the, the traumas of genocide, of slavery, like all of those traumas are collective traumas that definitely make a vulnerability, a genetic vulnerability within individuals that uh, classify within a specific social group. And then there's also um, traumas that don't necessarily have to do with something that was systemic, although the studies that um, are the more prominent studies that we have to date do have to do with collective traumas. There are also other traumas like domestic disputes that were ongoing in a, in a person's home, like um, a person having undergone emotional, verbal, and physical abuse and other types of abuse, right? Like the full gamut of abuse. And so, um, and that being something that is translated forward at the genetic level. And really what we know about epigenetics, because I think sometimes we, some people aren't familiar with that term or really what it means, yeah. is that our genes are basically turning either on or off based on what is happening in our lives. So our genes are saying, oh, okay, the way that I naturally operate is from a place of stress. So if that is my the status quo, that is just my general default way of, of going about life, then my genes are basically saying to themselves, hey, we have to always be in a state of stress because that's the norm here. And when your genes mm. are pre-programmed to operate with at that hormonal level, always operating from a place of stress, then that genetic material is being translated forward in the mother's belly, in utero, in the, in the parent's belly. Um, onto the child. And so now the child is born with an emotional predisposition to stress. And so that's Crazy. how the transmission just kind of keeps going. So, so it's almost what I'm hearing is it's almost like if mom had, I'm just using anxiety as an example, if mom ha had trauma and anxiety and that got passed down to you, if you're experiencing anxiety, it, if it's in your genes, you're going, anxiety is actually going to feel physiologically normal to you. Is, exactly. is, is that what happens? So you don't even realize you keep creating more anxious situations yeah. because you're trying to make your body feel normal. Is, mm -hmm. Do I have that right? Yeah. And what is normal, right? Like what is yeah, point. normal versus like my normal? Because then if your predisposition has been pre-programmed since day one, 
to be at a high level of stress. And I say stress because I think stress can be pretty all encompassing when it comes to trauma, when it comes to anxiety, when it comes to all the all the things that flow from stress, the, the worry thoughts, all of those things. Um, and so it, when we factor in that an emotional um, vulnerability is the baseline, is basically where we start off from, then that is what a person would have always experienced as normal. It is what their normal is versus someone that had a a different uh, genetic base by which to operate. And how do we tell, and I'm just going to use like, you know, mom, child kind of concept. How do we know what's genetic and within us that trauma and what was just modeled for us? Because if mom, you know, had created a, like quick stress responses and modeled that for us. We're also don't even realize, especially those first seven years of life that we're imprinting the behaviors of how mom handles stress. So how do we know what was just modeling and what is actually in our DNA? Mm -hmm. It's a great question. Um, You know, to date, we don't have like clinics where people can go and like get genetic tested out right (laughs) you know it would be lovely if we had like some sort of mechanism to actually distinguish the two um usually the data that we have comes from the mother themselves or the grandparent that came before that mother and the ways in which they handled stress because then when we start thinking about stress and we start really attuning to the body and the ways in which stress is implanted in the body, we get down to the nervous system. Mm. And so when we're talking about the nervous system and the nervous system always being on high alert, um, then we already have some sort of data. If we have a mom that's always on high alert and was that way prior to the child being born, if, if we have that mom operating that way, that's already our data that there is more likely than not a, a genetic expression that was um, Mm. formulated around that overactive nervous system that is now a part of that child's experience. So we have that, but um, I think there is something really key about your question that I'd like to highlight because the, the question also helps us to understand the fact that intergenerational trauma isn't just genetics and just the modeling. It Mm. isn't one or the other, but both. Right. And so, yeah. So if a mother has a hyperactive nervous system and she operates from a place of stress on an ongoing basis, however, she decides to disrupt the trauma responses and trauma behaviors prior to any modeling being present, then we don't have the other half of the transmission. Mm. And so then that then there's so if I'm a a a mom with a young child if I'm conscious about how what I'm modeling in old stress responses I can that would be a, an indi- a, a a key part to breaking the cycle is mom being aware of her own behavior so she doesn't pass that down is what I hear that's like one of the beginning pieces of breaking that cycle yeah, really key component because a lot of the initial learned behaviors and initial mechanisms of socialized trauma do happen in the home, right? It's mm. the primary area where we're situated socially, where we learn social cues or mirror neurons are floating and like it's all of those things, right? And so if the trauma responses are being disrupted by the parent prior to the other half of intergenerational trauma really taking on, 
then we have an opportunity for a disruption. And so, and then I just want to point out, this isn't, um, you know, there's a lot of mommy guilt out there in the world. And uh, there's also a lot of, you know, I would more than just mommy blame. Um, there is a, a tendency I've seen in interacting with people of like frustration with parents or frustration with our upbringing. And so, but can we look at what is, look at our parents, look at our grandparents, look at how they did uh, life and how they responded to life. And can we use that as fuel to really have reflection into ourselves and say, oh, I'm reacting like this because it's so, I want to use the word subconscious, but it's so ingrained in my body. So instead of villainizing mom, I could, I could say, well, that's interesting that she reacts like this. I wonder if there's a deeper way for me to go at my own reaction to something like stress. Is that, would that be a more enlightened way to look at this? That was so beautifully stated. That would be absolutely a goal, right? For us to be able, because within what you just said, there isn't only enlightenment and the capacity to reflect upon what the trauma patterns have been that are there that you're willing and capable to disrupt, but there's also an element of self-compassion that mm. can be implemented within that, um, which can be a, a really important intervention towards mommy guilt, right? Yeah. If a mother is able to say, wow, um, this was here well before me, I had to undergo this experience and I had to live decades in this body that was embodying trauma, I really feel for myself and I really want to show up for myself. And a part of the way that I show up for myself in this moment is by giving my children something different, mm. by actually recreating what a childhood can look like that is stable, that embodies secure attachment, that is um, not a derivative of a trauma response, mm. but really conscious. And so having that element of compassion together with the disrupting feature of disrupting the trauma is, is really key for parents. And yeah, and hard to do. I, I just want to point this out. Like we can have a conversation about it and it sounds like, oh yeah, I should probably do that. But I, I will tell you as a parent, um, you know, my kids are 22 and 19 and I look at my 22-year-old and I see so many ways in which I mismanaged stress and didn't handle it right. And she and she adopted that same reactive um, approach to stress. Um, and I don't know if that's modeling. I don't know if that was handed down through the generations, but you definitely, I can see where the pattern would continue if you're not really, really conscious about it. Mm -hmm. So, it, but once we become conscious, what do we do? How do we go about it? Because um, when it's in your DNA, that's hard to do. So is awareness the first step? 100%. I mean, like, think about it. A couple of years ago, probably all of us didn't have the language that we have now around trauma, around mm. intergenerational trauma, around the fact that we didn't even have like words like epigenetics really floating through society, right? In the yep. way we are now outside of scientific texts. So 
being able to have um, acquisition of knowledge is always going to be an integral step in, in being able to disrupt cycles of trauma. And so um, actually being attuned to not only what trauma is, how it becomes implanted in the mind, the body and spirit, but also um, the actual mechanisms of healing trauma are going to be a very important, you know, details for us to know, but it, the key words are to know, right. To right. have knowledge of. Yeah, so absolutely. Knowledge is the first step. And yeah. <laughs> go, go ahead. What, what did you say? No, I'm just saying, you know, then there are others, of course, I right. knowledge isn't all that we need, but, but it is important. Well, it's hard to, it's hard to, I don't want to use the word fix, but I can't think of a better word in this moment. It's hard to fix a problem you're not aware of. <laughs> so what, where I see your work and this discussion so helpful to people is we, we have like loops of thoughts and loops of behavior that we throw therapy at, we throw, uh, you know, all kinds of things, you know, every little, uh, uh, everything from meditations to tapping to all these things to try to break it. But if it's at the gene, gene level that our anxiety exists, do we need a bigger toolbox to start to break this? And what would that toolbox look like? We do. We need a, a more comprehensive toolbox for sure. Um, you know, of course, I'm I'm writing the recipe to the toolbox. So yeah, great. Yeah, I'm like, give us. I, the one thing I, I like to do is like take a complex problem mm-hmm. and like break it down into steps. So, and I know you're in the middle of your uh, writing your book, um, mm-hmm. but I the, I think what what I'd love to help my audience understand is if you are having trouble breaking an emotional cycle, it may be so deeply embedded that you need a bigger tool than just talking about it. And so I know you use different things like sound and, um, and I, you know, I don't, you have a whole break your cycle course. So how do you give us some ideas of if someone's listening to this and making connecting dots and they're like, Oh my gosh, I never realized that I'm anxious because that's how my mom was. And that's how my grandparents were. And Maybe there was a trauma my great-grandparents had. So, so if you're waking up to that idea that there may be a deeper reason for the mental hurdles or the, the things that are holding us back, where, where do you begin? How do you, how do you start breaking that cycle? Yeah, I love the question. So, you know, the, where people tend to begin, I think humans, we tend to go directly to the mind. We want to know all the details. We want to, um, you know, just factor in everything that happened, get a full history. And although that is a really important aspect to consider, where trauma plants itself the most, as we now know, I think it's been popularized enough, is that it's, it's really generated inside of the body. And if it is, as we know, at, at the cellular level, then we have to be more attuned to the actual practices that we are in full understanding really reach us at the cellular level, right? So my interesting inclination is always to go with nervous system resets. Mm. So for example, mindfulness practice is more than what we give it credit. 
Uh, There's so much more at the cellular level that is operative in mindfulness practices. And as we know now, you know, through science, mindfulness also has the capacity for neuroplastics. So it can Mm. actually engage in in neuroplasticity done with enough time, enough times and, you know, with enough dedication that there is a way to reconfigure the emotion centers of the brain through neuroplastics, through the act of mindfulness, right? And mindfulness, as we know, can be so vast these days, right? Yeah, there's a lot. And it's It's kind of like, it's like that mindfulness to me, when people say, oh, you need a mindfulness practice. To me, it's a little bit too vague. Maybe for my brain, it's like, okay, well, what does that look like? Do I just need to be aware of the moment or do I need like, or do I need to sit in meditation, which is really hard for people to do sometimes. So um, yeah. What would a mindfulness practice look like if you're trying to undo a, a, a generational trauma that's stored in the body? What would that look like? So when it comes to mindfulness practice for individuals that have undergone trauma, including intergenerational trauma, I almost never recommend that people do sitting. Mm. And first and foremost, I, I, I ascribe to the theory, to the idea around mindfulness being a lifestyle rather than a practice, mm. more so about looking at your day and looking at all of the parts of your day that can be slowed down. If you are a parent and you know, that the kids are going to be up at a certain time, maybe, but Instead of having your coffee while you're fixing breakfast or while you're, you know, just holding the mug while driving them to school and and there's so much that's happening, perhaps it's about giving yourself a five minute moment where you literally slow down your morning and Mm -hmm. you're integrating the very same practice that you do, which is drinking your coffee. But first coffee, I'm definitely a part of that crew, right? Yep. But it's it's my I got mine right here. (laughs) <laughs> I, love it. I love it. So, um, so it's about looking at everything that is already in your day and slowing it down so that you can be a bit more present. The thing that uh, that present based mentality does for us is that it shifts us from being too hyper-focused in the future, which is a precipitant mm. or at least a drive, a driver of anxiety or too much in the past, which we know, you know, that that constant rumination of the past is definitely a a key aspect of depression. So if we can actually bypass those two uh, emotional experiences just a little bit by shifting our direction into the present moment with just a little tiny tweak, it's not these like enormous, like go on this mental health retreat and, you know, like reset and reboot and all of those things. It's in the little tiny, tiny microscopic things that you can do in your day to day that's going to make the difference, right? Because that is what on a daily basis, your nervous system and your brain are registering as changes, as microscopic Mm. cellular changes that, excuse me, that are going to be really important to hold on to because the more that you do them, the more that you're resetting, the more that you're inviting in neuroplastics, the more that you're inviting in a more settled nervous system, the more that you're under undergoing a process where you're undoing some of the remnants of intergenerational trauma that have remained in your genes. So in the stillness of these moments where you slow life down, are you changing your brain? Is neuroplasticity at like, are we building new neurons? Are we, 
Are we breaking old pat old neuron thoughts? Are we are we undoing that just in the stillness? We are. I mean, uh, now we have enough studies because, of course, the amalgamation, the accumulation of studies that um, you know can show us one specific uh, detail of emotional change is always going to be really important for us to actually you know subscribe to a theory. So now we have enough studies that have been focusing on the ways in which mindfulness um, changes are the structure of our brains, not just our minds and how we think, but literally the, the organic structure of the brain is changing. That's what neuroplastics is. And, and more specifically changing in the areas of the brain where there is a centralized focus on emotion. Mm. So yes, the short answer is yes to that question, right? Um, neuroplastics can be um, initiated with ongoing practices that embody mindfulness and invite in uh, the stillness. Yes. And if a person, if especially a person in trauma, um, if stillness feels dysregulating, then stillness doesn't have to be uh, integrated into the practice. It can be a walking meditation, right? It can mm. be, you know, like it, there can be something that has mobility, which is always really important for anyone who is a trauma survivor or, or a survivor of intergenerational trauma. So mobilizing and moving some of the trauma out of the body is going to be really essential while also engaging in a mindfulness practice that can, you know, help with some of the restructuring of uh, brain centers and, 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 and the ways that our neurons are firing. And so if, we have it in our genetics, a stressful event happens to us or a traumatic event happens to us. What, what the part that really baffles my brain is if it's in genetics, it's almost like you are seeking out those situations that will trigger your, let's just use anxiety as an example, will trigger anxiety because it makes you feel normal. It makes you physiologically feel normal. Is Am I thinking that through right? Because I feel like that's the first step is understanding that maybe subconsciously we put ourselves in, in, in environments that will trigger us so that we have this crazy response that we don't want to have mm -hmm. because we physiologically feel normal when that happens. Am I thinking that through right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's an actual terminology for that. Um, and it's, it dates back to Freudian times and it's called repetition compulsion, where we actually repeat the very same um, patterns that are pre-programmed in our minds. Um, and, you know, when we find that chaos is familiar, that's what we lean towards, right? If you were born into a home where chaos was normalized, where there were a lot of people that were yelling, there were, there was, you know, um, ongoing emotional turmoil. And that just happened to be from day one, the status quo of the home that you existed in as a child, you are already pre-programmed to feel like it, you're basically like your mind is pairing home something that's homey and familiar with chaos. Wow. That's crazy. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. 
Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you gotta do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org, and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now, so come join me, my community, on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. So, okay, so if we are aware of that, then something as simple as, oh my gosh, I'm now ha- have been triggered by something that's giving me, um, making me feel anxious. If And we're aware that it may be this generational trauma. If we go for a walk instead of sitting and stewing in it, mm-hmm. we're changing our brain, which is breaking the pattern. Mm-hmm. And how many times will we have to do that? Like how long do we have to do that before we start to physiologically seek out ease and Mm -hmm. not seek out chaos? You know, because we're such variable humans, like it will be variable person to person. But the, the reality is that for many of us, it can take an ongoing practice that can be there for a year, years, right? And what I always like to remind folks is that, think about this, you're undoing not only decades of trauma, but potentially centuries of it. If we're talking about intergenerational trauma, you're undoing a lot of work that has been translated onto your body. And if you can take in that piece of information as you're doing the healing work, I think that that can also not only burgeon a bit of compassion, in your healing journey, but it can also burgeon a bit of patience, patience with yourself, which is very loving, right? It's Mm -hmm. an act of self-love. Like I'm going to be patient with myself while I continue to undergo this repetition compulsion until I have seen myself no longer get into those patterns. But in, in that journey, it's going to be really important to embody some of that gentleness, because if not, then you're going to get into tricky territory, which is very, very common for trauma survivors, which is the territory of shame. Mm. That's the, that's the lowest emotion. If you look at David Hawking's power versus force, Mm. like shame is the low, like the lowest frequency. That is a tough emotion. 
Yeah. And I mean, if people can think about how they feel when they're embodying shame, it's pretty low. It's dark. Yeah. It's dark. Yep. Hard to get out of. It's hard to mobilize out of, you know, and so all of that is to say that the more that we can keep a person out of a place of embodied shame when they're undergoing the healing of trauma, the the more that we're going to be able to invite in the compassion that is needed along a journey that is going to be pretty tough, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think this is why people like, you know, and this, I'm going to be very simple in this analogy, but if they were abused physically uh, by a parent, and then they end up in a marriage where they're abused physically. Is there, is that, and you, you, you think about that and you're like, how, how could you repeat that cycle? Is it because it's so ingrained in the genes that it's really so at such a subconscious level, we don't even realize we're doing it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things implicated in there, but I do believe that a, a part of it has to do with that homey feeling of chaos that we mm. talked about before, right? If if you knew chaos growing up, that's going to be normalized for you. And if it's normalized it, within your mind that a relationship has to have this amount of turmoil, then you're not going to really like think outside of the box with, within the relationship. You're going to just think, well, this is the status quo of how relationships operate mm. because all I've seen growing up. Um, but also, you know, individuals that um, are, have undergone some elements of trauma in their lives or are in traumatized bodies tend to be high, higher targets and um, more susceptible to repeated trauma. And so it makes sense that a person that comes from trauma will find themselves in a traumatizing situation yet again with a relationship with a spouse or with anyone else really at work kind of everywhere really yeah yeah i mean i it, it even down to the littlest like i look at my aging parents now and i and there are like things that my mother does at 82 years old that like triggers me and and upsets me is that um, is that because I see myself in that moment? Like, what? Talk a little bit about triggers and like when something triggers you, especially in a familial setting. Is that part of your DNA? It's genetic. It's in there, or um, is that just because she's my mom and she's triggering me? <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely don't think it's the latter. I don't think it's you know. Um, as simple as that, although one might be able to argue even that point, because when we're triggered by individuals that are primary caregivers or people that were in our initial stages of life, the triggers are definitely going to feel more profound, which is why, like when we talk about trauma, um, it is understood that many of the traumas that we suffer in childhood have these implications upon us that are so deep and profound um, that may be, um, you know, 
a, a deeper trauma or or more held in the body, like deeper in the body than maybe something that you suffer like an adult in adult life. Everything has nuances, of course. So I don't want to like. Right. It's it, I, we're we're making it way simple. Uh, we're taking a very complex problem, and we're <laughs> and what my brain is trying to do is simplify it for sure. Yeah. So I I can totally get that. Talk a little bit about what it does, what these this trauma does to us as far as our health goes, we've talked a little bit about mental health, but is there like, I know with Bruce Lipton's work, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about the receptor sites on the outside of our cells for thoughts and how we, when we think negative thoughts, we create in an inflammatory response. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit about when traumas hit, how it actually can show up as an inflammatory situation in our body. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's poor gut health. Maybe it's uh, low back pain. Maybe it's, I can't lose weight. Are those, do those have an intergenerational trauma piece to them? Well, you know, if we're talking about genetics and the ways that trauma can be so crafty about how it impacts plants itself in a person's body, then we have to have a conversation about the common thread, you know, um, of, of a mother's back pain and a child's back pain, right? Mm. Um, very, very much so. I think maybe more linearly, if we're talking about a mother's gut health and the child's gut health, because the the, the gut microbiome is just right. such a, a, a large, vast depository for our emotional health. Um, mm. Whenever you look at theories of inflammation when it comes to stress, almost inevitably you're going to find some element of IBS or some some gut problem that is implicated in there. Like in Gabor Mate's When the Body Says No, right? Like, right. Um, I wasn't shocked that as I'm reading, of course, I'm seeing the full gamut of inflammatory diseases and um, especially those that fall under the category of autoimmune that are being implicated in stress. Um, But I am, of course, not surprised that the gut is a very central um, area for disease for individuals that are are undergoing chronic trauma and, and where the intergenerational component is. So there are a lot of threads that that run through families that have to do with inflammatory responses that we're not attending to as much um, because we are still kind of living in an era where emotion-centered information is still being talked about as something that is very mind-centered. We're we're still kind of operating in the dichotomy of mind-body rather than the synergy of it. Um, and so there is still very much a lot um, that we have to understand as a general society around um, the ways that inflammation becomes cyclical in the body. Inflammation can be triggered by stress and trauma, and then it can be promoted and regenerated by stress and trauma on an ongoing basis from body to body. So if the autoimmune piece fascinates me. So if I am, let's say, you know, this happens a lot to women in their forties. I go in, in my forties, all of a sudden now I I've been diagnosed with, um, RA Mm -hmm. and you go into the doctor and the doctor says, oh yes, this is in your genetics and there's nothing you can do about it because it's in your genetics. 
Now I can tell you from my work, I, I, I'm just going to say, I call bullshit on that because <laughs> I feel, I know that we can use some health tools to really undo the, any genetic expression. But what I'm hearing you say is that there may also be this intergenerational trauma piece to it, to your autoimmune condition that can really, if you heal that, can you turn off that gene that's created an autoimmune situation? So I, I'm glad that you especially noted RA um, because rheumatoid arthritis is yet another um, condition that we're, we're finding a lot of threads with stress and a lot of threads um, with intergenerationally what's happening body to body. And there is both uh, the preventative uh, mm. component of how we approach um, any chronic illness, especially an inflammatory disease. And there is the, of course, you know, once a person is already in a body where um, an autoimmune condition has taken over, there is, um, you know, more of the reactionary work that we can do. But either way, we can do work that restores some sort of balance within the body that can offset even a, um, a nervous system or an autoimmune condition that is overactive, right? Um, I don't, um, I, I think I defer to you when it comes to any elements of diet that we can, you know, kind of like utilize and, 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 um, and, and prescribe to ourselves within our daily lives in order to help to reduce inflammatory response. But in my own work, that is also a component that I work with individuals on. However, of course, you know, leaning on a nutritionist or someone who specialized in the food world to, to bring in that knowledge so that the inflammatory response that can be attributed to food can also be integrated into the work. But that is a very key component because we cannot undo inflammation in a body that is being inflamed by everything that we ingest. Mm, yeah. And what I love about what you're saying is one of my new ahas as after being, you know, in the trenches for over 25 years with people and their healing journey, there is no longer one thing that's going to get you out. There yeah. is a toolbox. And if you think a pill, if you think a supplement, if you think one seminar is going to be the thing that gets you out, you, you, you're going to always be disappointed. Mm -hmm. So what I love about what you're saying is that let's make sure we're looking at the trauma piece, not just from our own life, but from uh, we haven't even discussed the cultural life and also just maybe from uh, the the ancestors would be the right way that that came before us. Um, so it, what I'm hearing from you is this is a key piece if you're trying to overturn a chronic condition like RA. Mm -hmm. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, because I mean, we hear all the time of stories of conditions going into remission, right? You know, not everyone is that lucky, but there are actual changes that a person can do. I always talk about inflammatory changes because I, I don't um, like to talk about lifestyle changes that maybe don't have a direct connection to reducing inflammation in the body mm -hmm. uh, because a person can be getting into a practice in order to help themselves, like, you know, lead a better life within an RA situation. 
and not necessarily um, be doing something that can help to to remove the inflammation. So I always lean on anti-inflammatory practices or anti-inflammatory lifestyle changes, right, to to help um, absolve some of that stress inflammatory response, but also, you know, what has now been uh, a more chronic, physical, and sometimes chronic mental um, response of the body and mind. So talk like, I know you work with patients, talk a little bit about if you have a patient in front of you, you're recognizing this trauma, they're recognizing the trauma, where do we go? Like, I'm intrigued on the sound healing that you use. um, And what other things can we think outside the box Mm -hmm. and start to implement to make changes that uh, will have lasting impact on us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of that. So sound bath. Meditation is a large part of my practice and a part of the reason is because of the ways in which it it can actually mobilize us at the cellular level through the mechanism of sound, which is ancestral healing because for generations upon generations, ancestors have been using sound in healing circles and the Tibetan sound bowls that I use Mm. in many different mechanisms of sound. Even as you think about it, you know, like music, music can be so healing, right? There are so many ways in which sound can produce a certain um, emission of um, an actual sound wave that can penetrate the body in a way that can produce healing, which is why I ascribe to sound bath meditations as, as a large part of the work that I do intergenerationally. Um, but it can, you know, also be in the nervous system reboots that we do on a daily basis. I know whenever I say that people are like the nervous system, what, and what is that? And how do I do that? Right. Yeah. I was like, so what, yeah. What reboots do you like? What other than what you mentioned, the pauses, what other reboots to the nervous system can we use? The two of my favorite that are accessible to every person that, you know, has, you know, a, a voice capacity, um, The first one is humming. So actually humming a tune or humming, um, you know, in in a a chanting ohm or something that can actually produce a a vibration to the ventral vagal system um, is a really important mechanism of, of rebooting the nervous system and getting it into out of that fight or flight or freeze or fawn response and, and more into a regulatory response. Um, and my absolute favorite, which I actually have like this little hammock in my, in my backyard, uh, to do it. I actually do some rocking mm. and I'm rocking in my seat whenever, you know, it's too cold to go outside and, and sit in the hammock. Like I just rock. I even, like I went to a concert two days ago and I thought my sister was recording the concert, but she panned to me and I was actually rocking and oh I, didn't my gosh. Realize I was just naturally doing it. Wow. That. Wow. So much, you know, and I I know that it regulates my nervous system. So I put it in practice at least five minutes a day of just rocking myself in it. If we think about like a baby, right? When we rock a baby, they mm. move and they go to sleep, right? More often than not. It's almost kind of inviting in that same regulatory calming response into the body. And it's something that any of us, you know, it, should we have the the body ability to be able to rock? we have a capacity to actually initiate that practice. It, I love, I love the nervous system to, to be, let's start with that because it can be so trained for good and it can be so trained for uh, disruption in our life, depending on how we uh, use our nervous system. So mm-hmm. is it 
can, would I want to put into my daily practice? Like I, you know, I, we talked about my morning meditation time before we hopped on. If I want to like do some meditation, if I throw in some humming, if I throw in some rocking, like now I'm stacking all these things, but what it's doing to start my day is retraining my nervous system for peace. Is Mm -hmm. it, that's what I'm thinking. Is it that simple? Well, it's as simple as starting there and that can have more of an impact than I think we, we might be able to give credit. Cause I think anybody would be listening to this conversation and say, oh yeah, in this body where, you know, it feels like it's always on fire. And quite frankly, yeah, these can have a really, really long lasting and immediate impact. Mm. Um, And all it takes is us starting with five minutes, maybe shifting to 10 minutes. And if you think about how many minutes we have in a day, you know, if you take only 10 of those and you actually do a nervous system reboot or actually start your day in a place where you're feeling more grounded because you've actually invited in more regulation into your nervous system, you'll start to see not only in the immediate moment, but also in the long term, that the trauma responses that you'll be having will be different, maybe more dimmed down and Mm. potentially over time, you know, maybe absolved completely. Yeah. I feel like we need um, all the, what I call woo-woo things that we used to say were woo-woo are now called neuroscience. (laughs) Fascinating. When I, when I was training, we still call them alternative therapies or CAM and um, I was the only trainee that was being trained under the U.S. Department of Health, like under a fellowship to actually practice uh, these kinds of alternative therapies within a psychological practice. And I just remember I would go into supervision with my colleagues and not a soul would know what I would be talking about. It was just like unheard of in the psychological world. And, and also just kind of in general, we weren't really ascribing to the, these mechanisms of healing and not understanding um, to what extent they, they, they could produce healing that, that could be very profound in this generation. Yeah. It's it, to me, it's like, the, it's such a fun time to be playing with these tools because I, I keep saying, and my listeners are probably like, yeah, yeah, we keep hearing you say this, but I feel like there is a health paradigm that's breaking apart. And there's a new paradigm that's formed. We just don't have a language for it. We just have people like you showing it and and many others that are showing a new way to do health. And I think that's so critical. We, it, it, you, you know, insanity is trying to get a different result, doing the same thing over and over again. So, you know, when we look at health going forward, I feel like this kind of work is is pivotal. So I appreciate you having this conversation with me. Um, let's, and I, I have so many more questions, but I know you have uh, a hard stop time. So let's move to gratitude, which is my theme for the podcast this year. Um, where does gratitude fit in to breaking the cycle? And then do you have a gratitude practice that you do every day, um, that, that you feel really is pivotal to your overall health? Yes, absolutely. You know, gratitude can be extended generationally because we get Mm. an opportunity to not only embody intergenerational resilience in the bodies that we're currently in, which is something to be incredibly grateful for. We are surviving. We are going 
through the day, right? Because there was an element of resilience that was transcended down as well. So something to be incredibly grateful for at the intergenerational level. Um, and my gratitude practice is actually a, a mental one. It's the very first thing as soon as I open my eyes that I do. And it starts with the things that are simple, like the fact that I have a warm home. Mm. Right? open my eyes up to is something that I'm incredibly grateful for. And I'm actually grateful for it every day. So every single day, I say that in my gratitude list mentally. Uh, some people like to write it. Some people like to verbalize it out loud. Um, I think, you know, my very subtle meditation of what I'm grateful for is enough for me. Um, but I think whatever variation of that works for people, you know, is, is welcome. So long as we can lean into the gratitude of what we have, um, both logistically, mentally, you know, kind of all the things really. Um, and so for, for me, you know, from an intergenerational perspective, I also add in the layer of being grateful for that resilience piece and being grateful, grateful for being covered in wisdom and, um, and also just for being able to bear the fruits um, of the labors of, of my ancestors, because I, I definitely am living in that legacy. So I, I, you actually just gave me an, a, a little insight. So a, a, a way to reframe some of the patterns that may have been passed down to us that we may not like might be in our genetics is gratitude that we're aware of them, grateful that they're there and sh revealing themselves so that we can make a change. Would, would that start to break the cycle? Absolutely. That is cycle breaking behavior, you know, being able to transform and reframe the mind and how we um, connect to intergenerational transcendence is always going to be, you know, something that that is going to be pivotal to the work itself. So I would invite yeah. that in wholeheartedly. So cool. So, okay. Well, how do people find you? I'm hoping that if, you know, if you're listening and you resonate with this, um, that they seek out your resources because we're all, when each one individual becomes a happier person, that happiness will ripple out into the world. So how do people find your work? Couldn't agree more. And um, my work can be found um, mostly on socials. I'm uh, at Dr. Mariel Bouquet. Um, I did start a podcast that focuses on intergenerational trauma. If people want a more expansive, you know, conversation uh, on that. And I'll be putting out some resources on courses and my book that will be coming out, Break the Cycle, that will be focused on intergenerational trauma. So I think I'm trying my best to globally and comprehensively um, help people understand this area of work and hopefully people, you know, will, will resonate with the content. Thank you so much for joining me in today's episode. I love bringing thoughtful discussions about all things health to you. If you enjoyed it, we'd love to know about it. So please leave us a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what your biggest takeaway is.